You may be seated. It's so good to see you this morning and to worship uh, with you. Uh, so very, very good. We're talking about accountability today. We're in a series, if you're new, called Devoted. And the series called Devoted is uh, talking about spiritual disciplines. What are the things that you and I need to practice daily, weekly, monthly, however uh, the timing of them may be or the rhythm may be, um, what do we need to practice in order to grow in our walk with God and be who he's called us to be? And so today we're talking about accountability and confession. And so let's jump right in. Um, We find here in this passage James, who, by the way, is the half-brother of Jesus. James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, is uh, writing to a... Uh, 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 an embattled group of people, they're suffering. And so he's talking to them about togetherness and about accountability. It's interesting that in it, uh, in verses 15 through 18, every single verse has the word prayer in it. So prayer is bound up in what it means to be in community with one another and to uh, hold one another accountable. But uh, James gives three directives here. We're going to look at those. They're fairly simple, uh, but they're very profound. And the first is look up to God. Look up to God. So jot that down. Look up to God. He said, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I love that James acknowledges that in the church will be all kinds of people. There will be happy people and sad people, burdened people and light people. And certainly as I've talked to you, as you've come in this morning and we've had conversations, you are at those different places yourselves. Some of you are burdened. There are diagnoses that you've mentioned to me. There are situations in which you find yourselves. And some of you are overjoyed. You have heard some really good news this week, and you are overjoyed in having heard your good news. Either way, James says, look up to God. Look up to God. Wherever you may be on the spectrum, look up to God. Then he says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, um, the uh, sickness appears to be so severe that this person cannot get to where the elders are, and the elders have to come to them. So it's a very serious sickness, and then the question comes, well, who are elders? Elders were spiritually mature men who guided the spiritual development of, of a church. That's what elders were in James' day. They were spiritually mature men. They had the job of guiding the spiritual direction of the church. And James says, if you're sick, call them and have them come and anoint you with oil. So call them and have them anoint you with oil. So let's talk about that for a little bit. What is the significance of the oil? What does the oil mean? Well, uh, the oil uh, in the Old Testament was used to set apart somebody. So if a priest was going to go into the priesthood, then he would be anointed with oil. And as he was anointed with oil, that set him apart for the priesthood. 
the oil used to anoint a sick person then sets that person apart for God. Saying, God, here is somebody who's sick. Here is somebody who's needy. They're sick and they're needy. And I'm going to set them apart for you. So I remember years and years ago, this was early in my pastorate, uh, somebody reached out and said they wanted to be anointed with oil. Well, I do that as an elder, and I have uh, a little vial of oil that I use for that. But they wanted me, and they wanted also uh, Bill Dages. So Bill is a, a friend of mine who's a PCA pastor, so they want Bill to come and anoint them with oil, and, and they want me to come. All right, so I, I've got my back, Baptist background, and in my context, the oil would uh, seemingly magically appear from behind the pulpit, right, with a little vial, little dot here. So Bill, I come in with my little vial. Bill comes in. He's been to Ingalls, and he's bought a whole jar. It's this tall. It's olive oil. And I'm like, what in the world, Bill, are you going to do with this? And so we talk. We pray a bit. And then Bill gets it, and he says, here, Jerry, pour it into my hands. And so I pour it out into his hands enough, and Bill's got big hands, enough to fill Bill's big hands, and he dumps it on the woman. And I'm like, she's set apart. It is running down her, her head. I've never seen anything like this in my life. And, and I, I, it's just a new thing for me, right? And so we pray for this woman who has olive oil running down her head. And I'm thinking, like, head and shoulders will not touch that. Like, it's just profound. But Bill did, we both anointed him, anoint, uh, her and him, and we prayed for them. The oil, be it a drop, be it a whole jar, it, it's, there's no power in it. It simply says, God, here's somebody who needs you, and I'm setting aside this person, setting them apart for you, God. You need to move. Here is the qualification, in the name of the Lord. All right, so when I do that, I don't do it in my name or my power or my ability or anything that I have that's impressive. I do it in the name of the Lord. But then here comes the very difficult verse in James 5. And if you are, uh, have any kind of intellect and you read this passage, you see it. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What's difficult about that, sometimes it happens, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the person who is sick is raised up and healed. And sometimes the person who is sick is not raised up and healed. Now, I know that ultimately everyone who knows Christ will be ultimately healed in heaven. I know that. James doesn't seem to be shooting forward here. He's just saying, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. This is a bold claim. So does this happen every time? No, it doesn't. As a matter of fact, I've prayed for many people through the years. Most of them have not been raised up and healed. Most of them have not. And if that is the case, then why? Remember several years ago, knowing a young couple, this young couple recently married, got pregnant. They attended an upstate church in upstate South Carolina, and they miscarried. The leadership of that church, some elders told them if they had had enough faith, they would not have miscarried. 
And this young couple was left to wonder, what was it they were lacking that caused them to miscarry? Could the leadership of that church be getting support for their position from verse 15? Yes. They're probably looking at verse 15 going, there it is. It's black and white. Amy Carmichael, remarkable missionary in the early 1900s, shared her experience. She was a missionary to India. Shared her experience when a dear co-worker, her name is Panamal, contracted cancer and fell ill. So Amy, aware of this passage of Scripture, said to herself, I've got to find some elders, but it's a mission. We're not a church. Where are the elders? She began to pray, and God sent a dear friend who was an elder of, of his church to come. And then she writes, very honestly, it was a solemn meeting around the sickbed. The women dressed as usual in their handloom saris, but white ones for this occasion. They laid a palm branch across Panama's bed as a sign of victory and accepted whatever answer God might give, certain that whether it was to be physical healing or not, he would give victory and peace. It sounds like a simple formula. It was an act of faith but certainly accompanied by the anguish of doubt and desire, which had to be brought again and again under the authority of the master. And from that very day, Panamal grew worse. The pain increased and her eyes grew dull as she lingered for days in misery until she reached her limit and her warfare was accomplished. She died. But Amy did what this said. My father, who pastored for more than 50 years, shared how early in his ministry there developed on his tonsils, nodules, went to the doctor who put him on voice arrest, and so he could not speak, voice rest, and he could not speak for weeks. It was killing him as a preacher. He said he was at a service one night, and while he was there, it's a statement of faith right here in my microphone. While he was there, he said, a man approached me, and he said, God has sent me to pray for you. And he said, that man put his hands on me and began to pray. And dad said, I, who could not speak before he started, could speak clearly once he had finished. He was healed immediately. But here's the other remarkable reality. My dad is 72 years old. I've spent the last three days in a hospital with him, and he's dying. He said to us, we need hospice. Dad is dying. Can't breathe, and there's nothing they can do. Well, we prayed for a year and a half. The God who healed his tonsils has not healed his lungs. Do, do I this morning doubt that God? I do not. I do not understand it. I can't fathom it and wrap my mind around it or even my heart. It's a bit confusing. But it's the reality that the same God who healed him in an instant there is not healing him today. And we are going to walk down a road we've not walked before now as dad says 
I think my time has come. Why was one healed and the other not? I am convinced that the answer is not found. The answer is found not in the faithfulness of the elders, but in the faithfulness of God. You see, if I set aside my dad, if I set aside someone, if I anoint them with oil and I set them aside for God, God is the one who decides. It is his doing if he is healed. It is his doing if he is not healed. That isn't in my purview. And I will say to you, I know myself. And if it depends on my faithfulness, we're all in a heap of trouble. Because I waver at times. I cannot promise you that God will heal you, but I can promise you that he will hear you. I can promise you he will never turn a deaf ear to you. And so I would say, look up to God. Number two, look around to one another. Look at this. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. All right, so you might say, well, I'll tell God what I've done wrong. Barclay says this, it is easier to confess sins to God than to confess them to another person. And yet in sin, there are two barriers to be removed. The barrier it sets up between us and God and the barrier it sets up between us and other people. You need somebody in your life who hears you confess your sin. What does it mean to confess? It means to agree with God and with others who love you that your sin is sin. That's what it means. So you need someone in your life, maybe two or three people who know your junk, right? They know your weaknesses. They know what hang-ups and habits and hurts you have, and they're willing to hear them. James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and Pray for one another. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. And some of you are saying, well, I'm not righteous. If you belong to God in Christ, you are righteous. You are declared right by God through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, shed for you on the cross. You are accepted. You are in. You are in the family. And so then James gives an example. Wow. What an example he gives. The man's name is Elijah. He says, Elijah was a man like you. And he prayed for three years and a half. He prayed that it wouldn't rain, and for three years and a half it didn't. Then he prayed again, and the rain came. And if you're a Jew, that miracle of causing the weather to do something is ultimate. Even above raising somebody from the dead. It is. In a Jew's mind, that's the ultimate That's the ultimate. James goes to the ultimate, and he said, there was a man just like you who prayed, and it didn't rain. And then he prayed again, and it did. So James says, hey, hey, Elijah and you, not much difference. But what's interesting is Elijah's portfolio of miracles are pretty profound. I mean, they're pretty amazing miracles that Elijah has under his belt. And the one that fascinates me just tremendously is uh, during the drought, People were running out of flour, and they're running out of water. And Elijah finds a single mom of all people. And he says to the single mom, I want something to eat. And she looks at him and says, well, Elijah, uh, that's fine, but I've just got enough oil, and I've got enough flour to make one more. I've just got enough oil and enough flour to make one more pone of bread. That's it. That's all I got. He says, okay, make it. 
Like, who are you, Elijah? Right? That's what I want to know at that point. Who is this guy? And so what does she do? Well, she makes the bread. And when she does, she discovers the Bill Dage's bottle of oil, right? The big one, right? That overflows like the oil never, ever runs out until the drought's over. And the flour, she, she just has enough. Well, end of story, right? No. No, that miracle happens and her son still dies. Yeah. And what does she do? She blames Elijah. Elijah, what in the world? You've come into my house, you've eaten my food, and now my son has died. And what does Elijah do? He, he waxes eloquent and says, oh, God is amazing and never doubt him. No, look at this verse. Look at this verse. Be on your screen. 1 Kings 17, 12. And she said, no, 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 wrong verse. Let me get over here. Uh, 1 Kings 17, 20. And he cried to the Lord, oh, Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? <laughs> Who does he blame? Say it loud. It's true. Who does he blame? God. He blames God. This is the miracle work in Elijah, and he blames God. And have you ever been there? Something bad happens. Well, God, why in the world? What were you thinking? Where were you? What did you do? If you have, you're in good company. So did Elijah. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and... He revived. So in one breath, he's like, God, what in the world were you thinking? Why did you let this die? And then, then the other breath, oh, Lord, bring this person back to life. That's us, isn't it? So now you're, you're a person like Elijah. Sometimes you want to blame God, and other times you cry out to him. But some of you are saying, how in the world... Could I ever pray such a prayer that have a, would have such power that would raise someone from the dead? I would say this. If you've ever prayed a prayer and seen somebody come to faith in Christ, coming to faith in Christ is bigger and better any day than raising somebody from the dead. Why? That's for good. That's for eternity. When somebody comes out of darkness into light, when somebody comes from this side to that, when somebody is raised up to live an entirely new life, that is the ultimate, and God will use you. As a matter of fact, there's no plan B. If you do not pray, if you do not step out, God doesn't have another plan. He uses us to bring others to himself. So what do you need to do? Turn to one another. How, how, you say? Well, at Grace, if you're in a good, healthy life group, it happens in there. You, you pray for one another. It's probably three weeks ago, life group, we're huddled up in the living room, and we begin the, the lessons on prayer, and we begin to pray. Oh, my goodness. What God did in that living room. As I heard people pray, I, I didn't know they could pray like that. I really didn't. I had no clue that these people sitting in my living room could call down heaven like they did. Tears flowed and hearts opened and we, we wept together and prayed for one another with the different places that we were at in our, in our walk. You can do that way or I have, I have three men who hold me accountable and if I struggle, I, I'll shoot them a text and 
immediately, immediately they'll say, pray now. Sometimes they'll shoot me a prayer right back via text. If you're flying solo, uh, you should not. You should not. You need others. You need somebody in your corner. And so if you're not in a life group, James, who's sitting right here to my left, leads our life group ministry, find him after this service. He'll be right back in the right-hand corner as you leave and say, sign me up. I want to be in a group. If you're in a group and it's not that kind of functioning in that way, bring, bring that to that group. Bring that, that prayer. Number three, look out for one another. Uh, 19 and 20, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the third time the phrase among you has occurred. Do you know what's interesting? James isn't talking about sinners who wander. He's talking about believers who do. It's possible that, that you could wander. You, you can wander from the truth. On Tuesday, January 22nd of this year, three-year-old Casey Hathaway lives in eastern North Carolina. There he is on the screen. Was out in his mom's, in his grandmother's backyard when he wandered away. There were quite a few kids playing she didn't notice until he was gone. They began to look. They began to search high and low for two days. They looked for Casey. Could you imagine being that mom and dad looking for the, your little boy? They, they got crews together to try to find this little boy. No sign of Casey. Thursday morning, woman's walking her dogs down a dirt road. Hears a cry over in the thicket in the woods and thinks, that's unusual. Picks up the phone, calls 911. Of course, they know. They're looking for Casey. They get a team there right away. They describe trying to get to him as so difficult for their team that there were uh, uh, sinkholes that were waist deep. Briars they had to get through. But they got to Casey. There's mom and dad. They got to him. They said he was cold. He was wet. It's January. But he was speaking when they got there. Do you think, do you think that they slept those two nights? No. They didn't sleep those two nights. No, you know they were awake the whole time wondering, where is our boy? What has happened to him? What in the world has happened to little Casey? And they, they, they couldn't sleep. You couldn't if you're a mom or a dad. Even if you're not, there's something in your heart that goes out for someone who's lost, who's out in the thicket somewhere. Well, that's what James says we're to be about as a church. We are to look around and go and find the wandering, lost, wandering away away from the faith person because we are all prone to wonder. We're prone to wonder. You see, when you come to God by faith in Christ, that's called salvation. And in salvation, God saves us from our sin, but in sanctification, he saves us from ourselves. You see, I'm, a, I'm my own worst enemy, amen, as you are too. 
And so he saves us from ourselves. And that is constant. So what does this mean? It means that if you look around and you see a wandering brother or sister, go after them. Hit full out rescue mode. Be okay to to get in the mud and the mire and to get some briars on you and be okay to be in the thicket and be okay to look dirty while you're trying to find them because God is on an ultimate rescue mission to save people and he's also the one who leaves 99 safe in the fold to find one who's wondered. So should you. So should you. I would say if you're in here this morning and you've wondered, well, I'm glad you've wandered into here. It's time to come home. It's time to come home. In 1948, in Modesto, California, Billy Graham, George Beverly Shea, Cliff Barrows, and Grady Wilson. They were the leaders of the brand new Billy Graham Association. They they were part of a movement after the war People flooded to tents, to revivals. God had called Graham to preach and the others to lead and sing. And yet they had noticed already in this young, burgeoning revival movement, they realized a problem. And the problem was this, that there were opportunistic evangelists there. These opportunistic evangelists were uh, in it for the money, political power. They counted numbers wrong just to make themselves look better. And so Graham called a meeting, and when he did, it was of his three leaders and himself, and they decided on some things that day. In that hotel room, they said, This is how we'll handle money. This is how we'll count people. This is how we will do what we do. The last thing they settled on had to do with purity. They said, we will never be alone with a woman other than our wife. And so they followed that. No meal with a member of the opposite sex, no travel, none of it. It became known as the Modesto Manifesto. That decision by them to lead and live like that. It was a year later that you see on the screen the great Los Angeles crusade was held. Believe it or not, in that tent, 300 
and 50,000 people came through. It was supposed to last three weeks, and it lasted eight. God was on the move. And what is interesting, what is interesting is how the L.A. Times covered it. Here's what they said. They talked of Billy Graham. They zeroed in on him, his stunning good looks, his curly hair, his tall stature. They only or almost solely talked of his sex appeal. But a year before, Graham had said, we, we will do this, 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 and this. And a year later, with remarkable fame and tempting words, he stayed the course. Some of you may need your own manifesto. You may need your own group, and you may need to say, you've got to shoot straight on this, this, and this. If you do, let us help you. On my blog, enoughfortoday.org, at 1215, just a few minutes, we'll populate a blog that posted actually in August on accountability. It'll give you some pointers. Check it out, enoughfortoday.org. Al Michael, would you come? Al Michael's going to come and share an opportunity with you. As he does, I want to pray for you. Father, I thank you for the people in this room. Lord, in the place that I am in my own life, what a joy it is to be with them in this space. What a joy it is to worship and sing songs and enjoy their company. I told Wendy last night, Lord, I just couldn't imagine being anywhere else this morning. I cannot wait to get here and sing and worship and celebrate you. This is family, and it's good. I pray for those who are lurking in the shadows, isolated. I pray that they would come out, be known walk as they should in concert with other faithful believers in confession and accountability. There's no better way. May they deal with sin on the front side, not on the dark side. In your name.